Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of Care Package to Japan. I am your host, Evangeline. And today I have a very special guest on the show. His name is Jim. Hi, Jim. Thank you for being on the show today. Hello. How are you? Good. How's it going? How's, where are you right now? I am in Japan. I'm in Guma Prefecture, which is oh, about 60 miles north of Tokyo. I'm、uh, on Mount Akagi, which is where I live. So, up in the mountains. Awesome. And for the listeners that don't know too much about you, Jim, can you give a brief intro into who you are? What is Jim about? What do you, what do you like to do? And why Japan? I know it's a loaded question. My name is Jim Peterson. I live in Japan. I've actually lived here all my life.、Um, my parents were missionaries as well. So, I was born and raised here. Did college in the States and then came back to Japan as a missionary.、Um, been serving with the Evangelical Covenant Church in Japan since 1993 with my wife Heidi. And、um, we are currently, as I said, living in the mountains because there's a camp up here. It's called Akagi Bible Camp. And my wife and I are like live in caretakers for the camp facility. So we get to live here,、uh, enjoy the beauty of nature, and uh, sort of uh, head up the taking care of and running a campsite.、Um, I also do a few other things in ministry. I、um, teach at a seminary in Tokyo called the Covenant Seminary. Been doing that for going on 20 years, maybe.、Um, and so, a couple days a week, I'm doing that, which used to mean traveling to Tokyo every week. But now, because of COVID and everything, it's all online, which has made it a little easier. It's like a three hour drive, probably, from where I live to the seminary in downtown Tokyo. And I also、uh, work in local churches, I do a lot of preaching. Pretty much every Sunday, I'm out somewhere、uh, preaching in a church. And so those are the things that、uh, keep me busy these days. But、uh, I love all of them and love what I do. That is awesome. And before we dive deeper into each of those topics, what, what are some things that have been super life giving to you in this season of life? <laughs> um, Yeah, you know, we moved here to Mount Okagi to the camp eight years ago. And I have to say, I'm still pinching myself every day like, am I really this fortunate that I get to live in a place like this? I've spent a lot of time living in cities, I've lived in small towns.、Um, and I was fine with that, but. Kind of, you know, living where you're surrounded by forests and mountains and lakes and rivers was always kind of a dream. And I figured maybe in retirement I get to do it. Well, guess what? I get to do it right now. And so it's awesome. I just love,、uh, you know, looking out my window and 90% of what I see is stuff that's directly made by God's hand. And maybe 10% of what I see is. Stuff that people have made, and you know, it's the exact opposite 
in most places. And so that is amazingly life-giving for me. And as a way of enjoying that, um, I do a lot of photography. I enjoy that very much. And uh, since moving here, um, I have jumped full-time into another pastime, which <laughs> I don't know how all your listeners feel about it. There's probably divided opinions, which is totally cool, but I do a lot of hunting up here, a lot of deer hunting. And so um, just being in nature, I love it. Yeah, I've had the fortune of visiting you guys once. I don't remember what year it was, but I do remember visiting you guys and Mount Akagi is absolutely breathtaking. I think when I visited, it was maybe April of 2017 or 18. I don't remember the exact year, but I remember we went to go see Sakura and I stayed overnight at the your cabin or, or Mount Akagi and the day after I remember seeing just like snow covered and I was like so shocked because I've never seen snow in Japan as of as of yet and I was like oh my gosh it's so beautiful everything is covered in snow and there's a beautiful gorgeous lake right it's like less than 10 minute walk, or maybe about a 10 minute walk. I don't remember it's how more long. like a three or four minute walk. It's real close. Oh, super close. Yeah, that lake is just so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, you and Heidi are so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, most people, when they think of Japan, they think of big cities and crowdedness. And it's true, we have big cities and those cities are really crowded. But what a lot of people don't realize is that most of the landmass in Japan is rugged mountains with very few people living in them. Almost all the people live in the few big cities that are on the flatland. And so what do they say? Like 90% of Japanese population lives in 15% of the land. Um, yeah. So, you know, the great majority of Japan is just beautiful and fairly uninhabited mountains. Yeah. That's crazy that cities like Tokyo and Osaka are just so concentrated with people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, the population density in Japan is um, pretty amazing. <laughs> How would you describe the folks that live out in Mount Akagi? Oh, like what are the demographics? The people like? who live around us. So the top of the mountain here is kind of like a tourist spot. And so there are like gift shops and some restaurants. But that's about it as far as stores go. And most of the people who live up here are the people who own and operate those kind of stores. Um, our population of permanent residents up here on top of the mountain is something like 25 or 26 people in about 15 households. And um, a lot of them are elderly people. So Mount Akagi used to be a really booming tourist area. 
And for the last 50 years, it's sort of been in a kind of gradual decline, simply because over time, more and more beautiful areas have been developed in the mountains that people can enjoy. And so there's just a lot more competition. Um, so we don't see a lot of, you know, new businesses popping up here or anything like that. And most of the people who live here have been here for a very long time. Quite a few of them have been here all their lives. And um, so when we came eight years ago, we were like the newcomers. But, you know, sometimes you think about like moving into a small town or a village with longtime residents and figure it's going to be really hard for a newcomer to be accepted. But our experience was the exact opposite. Probably because the the town has been sort of in a long-term gradual decline in terms of population and number of businesses. When anyone new comes, they're just like really happy. And the funny thing was, at the time when we came, I was in my early 50s and Heidi was, what, almost 50? And... The people on the mountain were like, oh, great, somebody young is coming. <laughs> so that gives you an idea how old a lot of the people are. But it's a very tight-knit community. We're all really good friends, and we help each other out with a lot of stuff. You know, we're high in the mountains, and so winters are fairly long and harsh and cold, and we just help each other out. And it's a long ways to get stuff. Like, if you want to go shopping, you have to go down the mountain, drive for half an hour and go down about a, a thousand meters in altitude before you get to, you know, the first supermarket or drugstore or convenience store or even hospital or clinic or post office or police station or fire station. All of that's down the mountain. And so it is kind of a secluded place up here. And so, yeah, we uh, are a close-knit neighborhood and we get along really well yeah i was just gonna ask when you first moved in how like i mean you said people received you guys really well um that's pretty funny just to paint a picture jim and heidi are um obviously caucasian uh, wait so why, why did you say right? obviously <laughs> where are you picking up that obviously. information do i just do i sound like a white boy that much <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just yes, kidding. you're right. We are white. We're as white as they come. <laughs> Jim, I still remember one time you and I were eating at a Japanese restaurant in Torrance, California, when you were visiting. <laughs> yeah. And we were in a very traditional Japanese restaurant, and I'm Asian and you're white. And I think the waitress like looked at me like expecting me to do the ordering and then you you open your mouth and you started speaking Japanese to her and like ordering all these things in Japanese and I think she was a little shocked she was like <laughs> who is this guy who speaks fluent Japanese yeah and the meal was delicious obviously you know? <laughs> I remember that meal it was a good time yeah no so yeah we stand out here um you know we're the only non-Japanese people who live on the mountaintop. Um, I'm about a foot taller than everybody else on the mountain. I don't notice it, but other people probably do. 
So yeah, and we're the only uh, followers of Jesus who live on this mountain. So I guess we stand out in a few ways. <laughs> Just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. <laughs> That's all right. We're used to it. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, well, obviously this podcast, I know they're obviously, this podcast is about Jesus in Japan. And I love to hear from your perspective of just within your social circle, how do people view what Christianity is? How do, like, from their perspective, what are missionaries? Who is Jesus? Like, what is what is that even like from the, the locals' perspective? So uh, the camp that we work at, Akagi Bible Camp, has been here for a long time. Um, it was started when I was one, so like 58, 59 years ago. Um, and everybody who lives up here have always known that there's a Christian camp here. Um, there haven't been very many times during those 58, 59 years that anyone from the camp has been living here permanently. There was one other Japanese pastor and his family who lived up here, oh, for seven or eight years. But even then, they found that at the time, the, the buildings here at camp were not warming, warm enough to live in in the wintertime. So they moved down in the coldest months. But um, other than that, it's just been a camp where in the springtime, people would show up, open it during the summer. They'd have lots of camping events and then when the summer was over they'd close it up again and leave and so the people on the mountain here never really had much personal connection with you know people connected to the camp or other christians or things like that um so this has been kind of a new experience um for them to have somebody from the camp living up here and to be able to get to know that person um, but, you know, this is Japan and Christianity has been around in one form or another for a pretty long time. And so even though there are no other like baptized believers living here on the mountain, there are a handful of people who have some fairly close connections to the Christian church. Um, and there are and the rest of the people at least know about it. Um, like one store owner um, who's a neighbor of mine, Japanese guy, of course, his older brother is a pastor, a Christian pastor. Um, so it's nothing new to him. Um, there's another guy who lives up here. Actually, his, his elderly mom lives up here and he lives kind of halfway up the mountain and commutes back and forth, but he's up here working every day. And when he was young, he grew up, he was born and raised on the mountain here. He's about my age. And he, I'm not sure how he got connected to a church, but he was very interested in Christianity, like as a teenager, and went to church regularly and essentially was a believer. But then he asked his mom or his parents, told him he wanted to get baptized and they said no uh, they didn't give him permission their family has a historic connection with the Shinto shrine up on the top of the mountain here 
And um, in Japan, family is very important. Family tradition is really important. And so his parents didn't give him permission to get baptized. And, you know, since then, I think his interest in the church and in faith has sort of cooled down, but still, I think on the inside, he considers himself a believer. And we've had lots of great conversations. He comes every once in a while and asks me questions, whether it's about the church or about things he's read in the Bible. He doesn't go to church all that often, probably just a few times a year with his family. But, um, you know, he's one of those guys that um, has a meaningful connection to faith. And so we've continually prayed for him. And I've always enjoyed the opportunities I have to uh, connect with him on a little bit deeper level. So yeah, people don't look at us as if we're Martians or from outer space or anything like that. Um, And most of the people up here, as is the case with a lot of Japanese people, even though they would probably call themselves Buddhist, um, it's not sort of a life-shaping commitment. It's just what their family tradition is. And so they tend to have fairly open and accepting attitudes about people of other religious traditions. Yeah, can you give a maybe a summary of what are the popular religions within Japan, um, just for the listeners who are mm. not as familiar with Japan and its history and its mm-hmm. background? Well, by far, uh, the most popular religion in Japan is the same as the United States. It's materialism, money. Um, More people worship that than anything else. And that's probably true worldwide. Um, It's a very materialistic society here. Um, Historically, uh, Japan has two main religions. The first and older one is called Shintoism. And Shinto is um, the way of the gods. It's a traditionally Japanese religion. It kind of started here in Japan. And it's an animistic religion, which means that they uh, recognize, respect, and revere the spirits that are believed to reside in nature. So spirits that reside in the lake, the river, the mountain, the trees, the animals, all of those things. It's in a lot of ways, it's fairly similar to traditional faith of native Americans in the U S. Um, and then, Oh, about, hmm, Oh, I can't remember my Japanese history now, but somewhere along the line, Buddhism, was uh, brought to Japan um, and from from the Asian continent. And for a long time, Buddhism was just kind of the religion of the elite people, but then eventually it sort of became the standard religion for the great majority of the population. There were times in history when there was a lot of tension uh, and conflict uh, between Shintoism and Buddhism, but 
in recent history that hasn't been the case at all and um, in fact most Japanese people will practice elements of Buddhism as well as elements of Shintoism um, you know milestone events in life are often often celebrated in some sort of a religious context and Japanese people are very accustomed to and comfortable with mixing all sorts of different religions at those particular milestone events. Just to give you an example, um, the majority of weddings in Japan, believe it or not, are done in a Christian format. This started oh, back in the 60s and 70s when famous Japanese movie stars and uh, celebrities would go to Hawaii for their weddings and then all the tabloids in Japan would have all the pictures of these American Christian style weddings in Hawaii of the rich and famous people with the white flowing gowns and all that and it became really popular uh, to the extent that in Japan now there are wedding chapels all across Japan that do weddings in Christian style um, the whole format is all Christian, even the the vows and everything. And sometimes the pastor person standing up in the front officiating the wedding is an actual pastor who sees it as an avenue for ministry. Other times it's someone just dressed up and acting like a pastor. <laughs> so it doesn't have a lot of deep meaning, but nevertheless... I would say the majority of Japanese people now, when they get married, they have a Christian wedding. But then if they have children, when a child is born, you always take the baby to a Shinto shrine to have it dedicated, just because that's where baby dedications are done. I mean, unless the person is like a committed Christian or something, but an average Japanese person who isn't a Christian has a Christian wedding, their children are dedicated at the Shinto shrine. And then when someone in the family dies and you have a funeral, the funeral almost always be a Buddhist funeral, simply because Buddhist temples do funerals. So for the average Japanese person, getting married Christian, getting having a baby dedicated Shinto and having a Buddhist funeral, that's considered completely normal. Nothing, no contradiction, no conflict of interest, Nothing strange or out of balance to the Japanese person. That's just normal. <laughs> Very interesting that the first religion that you mentioned is the worship of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that looks like in Japan? So similarities of maybe culture in Japan to the Western world, mm -hmm. but also differences that you've noticed yeah. in regards to this particular aspect? Well, Japan has a unique history in that um, for about two and a half centuries, Japan was a closed country, completely closed off to the outside world. This was like the 1600s, the 1700s, and halfway through the 1800s. So 250 years, Japan closed its doors to the outside world for various 
political, historical reasons. Um, a lot of it actually having to do with pr the fact that prior to that, Western countries who were um, taking over, you know, uh, other nations all over the world were starting to come to Japan, um, bring European countries, bringing their economic economic stuff, the trade, bringing their political influence, and bringing their uh, religious influence. So there were uh, there was a lot of Catholic activity uh, in Japan in the early 1600s, but then. Japan was like realizing that um, they didn't want to just be taken over by European countries. And so they completely closed off the country. And there was virtually no contact with the outside world. Um, during that time, the rest of the world sort of went through the Industrial Revolution. And things were modernized, big cities, industry, and people, you know, for the first time in history, for a lot of places in the world, able to choose where they go and what kind of job they seek. Um, meanwhile, Japan remained a feudal nation. So it was like Europe in the Middle Ages uh, until the 1850s. Finally, in, 18, in the early 1850s, Japan was forced to open its doors to the outside thanks to the arrival of the U.S. Navy fleet uh, under the leadership of Admiral Perry. And um, they showed up uh, at Tokyo with all their gunboats pointed at the city and said, would you like to trade with us? And Japan had no way of defending itself at that point. Um, they were still fighting their wars with swords at, uh, at that point in history. Um, so Japan was forced to open and suddenly Japan looks around the rest of the world, realizes that they are way behind in terms of like industrial development, uh, technology, uh, science, all, all that stuff. And even politically too. And so they've made this massive effort to catch up with the rest of the world. And um, they had a lot of help from Western nations because uh, Japan was seen as a valuable trade partner. And so they modernized very quickly and it changed Japan, just like modernization changed all countries. Um, but they were playing catch up and trying to be, trying to emulate uh, the, the West, Europe and North America and places like that. Um, eventually, uh, they did so well at that that they sort of began expanding their empire and taking over other Asian countries uh, to the point where they controlled a large chunk of Asia. And eventually, they got too big the rest of the world started to view them with suspicion and they confirmed those suspicions when they thought maybe they could even expand to places like Hawaii uh, and thus you have Pearl Harbor. So Japan entered a, a long period of war, of fighting against all those countries that had helped them to catch up. And eventually they lost that 
World War II. They lost and um, were decimated, becoming the only country still in the history of the world to be victims of um, an atomic bomb, early form of nuclear warfare. And so, once again, it was starting over from scratch. And amazingly, America, who had been their primary enemy during the war, became their main ally after that. And America actually saw that Japan was ready to become a democratic nation and be a close ally with the U.S., and they saw value in that. So uh, the American occupation put a lot of work into helping Japan uh, reestablish itself. And after that, Japan experienced like 30 years or 40 years of incredible economic growth. Well, that's sort of Japanese history in a nutshell, but or modern history at least. But through that experience, first um, in the 1850s, and then again after World War II, so beginning in 1946 and following, Japan experienced these periods of rapid economic growth and development and it was seen as the ticket to success and the ticket to happiness and so um, just very naturally the pursuit of wealth and material wealth in particular uh, just became like the de facto goal for the whole country and for people as individuals so yeah, it's um, it's still that way today. The economic growth, the bubble has sort of slowed down and in some ways Japan's economy has been kind of shrinking a little bit, getting passed up by China right about now. Um, but nevertheless, and bottom line, for a lot of people, what they're seeking in life, the reason they work, all of that is because they want to try to get rich, which is not unique to Japan, but it's definitely true here. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing a brief history. That was great. <laughs> Sorry, probably more detail than you wanted. <laughs> oh no, I actually learned a lot. Um, I mean, I have new piece, bits and pieces of it, but I haven't has someone articulated it in a holistic view. So that was really helpful for me to see the narrative through that lens. And it's like, oh, you're right. And you are particularly right about um, after the Industrial Revolution of how um, Japan really tried really hard to mm -hmm. catch up to, to the rest of the world standard. Mm -hmm. And I think that still is like fingerprints of that is still very relevant even within Japanese culture and society today. And particularly, I am thinking of just the sheer amount of quote-unquote Western food that are only found in Japan. Um, for example, I am thinking of like pancakes. Um, <laughs> Japanese pancakes are very different. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like Japanese pancakes <laughs> are very different than Western pancakes, but to the people in Japan, it's like they've taken something that's from a Western culture and they've just like 
master it to a whole different level. Yeah, actually, Japan has a long history of importing things from other countries and then tweaking them and adapting them. And it actually began in ancient history with influence of China. Um, you know, China was sort of the most developed nation in the world for centuries. And when Chinese people first started coming from the mainland to Japan, uh, Japan incorporated all sorts of things from China. Um, and, you know, the most visible is the, the writing system. They adopted the, ja the Chinese characters because at that point in history, the Japanese language was only a spoken language. They didn't have a writing system. Um, so, of course, they have then adapted that Chinese writing system to their own language. Um, and so now it looks quite different. Um, and yet that has become part and parcel of the Japanese language. And, um, you know, lots of other stuff that they uh, have imported uh, and then made something sort of new, but sort of different from the original out of those things that they've imported. And, um, yeah, now when you talk about pancakes, are you, which kind are you, are you thinking about like okonomiyaki pancakes or? No, I'm talking about in Tokyo, there's these, um, I think the, the restaurant's name is called Flippers. Um, <laughs> there are these giant souffle pancakes. Oh, and they're like crepes? Jiggly. Like crepes where they wrap them up? No, no, no? not, not crepes. <laughs> they are, um, Miho and me, me, Grant and Mio had it last time. Ah. It's like, they look really thick. It's like <laughs> very thick almost at least two inches tall oh, yeah, yeah yeah like at least two inches uh -huh. tall um and they call them pancakes yeah. but they're not like in america you wouldn't you would not find these things <laughs> like it's just not the same Close, closer to a giant muffin or something huh <laughs> yeah exactly exactly well you know food is one of the things where yeah i mean it's like in japan especially if you're in tokyo but even when you're out out of the city you can very easily find restaurants that serve Japanese food. And then you go a couple doors down and there's a restaurant that serves Chinese food. And go a little further and there will be a Korean barbecue restaurant. And then there will be a pasta restaurant that's all like Italian um, pizza places. Uh, just like pretty much every kind of ethnic food. Indian curry is incredibly popular here right now. And... But when they, when they import it, then they sort of, you know, adapt it. And so, like, I mean, Chinese food, something as simple as ramen, you know, bowl of noodles. Um, Chinese people come to Japan to eat that stuff because it's so good here. <laughs> and uh, Right, yeah. right. Like, I would never associate ramen with China now. Like, that's just yeah. not my association. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, historically, ramen is from China. Yeah, so Japanese cuisine has two types of noodles, soba and udon. Soba is made out of buckwheat and it's thin brown noodles. 
And udon is made out of regular wheat, but it's big, fat white noodles. And those two are Japanese, but ramen is Chinese. And, you know, along with gyoza, what do they call that in America? Like pot stickers or something like that. And all the other, yeah. all the other Chinese things that that's Chinese cuisine, but they have it like down to an art here in Japan. <laughs> and so it's very popular, but yeah, they just, you know, take things and they tweak them. I mean, you know, automobiles, I mean, the Model T, the Ford Model T, like one of the first cars, you know, cars sort of originated in America. And before long, Japan became the biggest or second biggest auto manufacturer in the world. And they've done things with cars that nobody else in the world has. So that's that's just the way they are. They don't necessarily come up with the the first. They're not like inventors of new things all that often, but they take things that someone else has invented and improve upon them. So what do you think? Were yeah. the pancakes an improvement or did you like them? Def a hundred percent, a hundred percent improvement. I miss it so much. And like even things like hamburger steak, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. it's like hamburger steak. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't find that in America at all. Yeah. People do not eat hamburger steak, yeah. but they're so good. And I can only find them in, well, particularly probably Tokyo. Um, so good though. <laughs> no, that they have that everywhere. It's common. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What are some things within Japanese culture that you feel like really reflect God's, whether it be God's character or God's nature, mm. that's that you feel like is pretty unique to the Japanese mm. culture? Oh, boy. Something unique to Japanese culture. Um, well, you know, Japan is um, traditionally, as is the case with most Asian countries, um, it's rather family centric. And, um, you know, your identity is based in the family that you belong to. And so, as a result, there's lots of things that are part of everyday life in Japan that are connected to showing respect or revering your ancestors. And um, when Buddhism came to Japan, they latched onto that rather quickly. And uh, that's why Buddhism does all the funerals. And, um, you know, traditionally, Buddhism didn't care about the afterlife at all. Um, the Buddha didn't even go to his own parents' funeral, the, the, the founder of Buddhism. Um, but Japanese people take family very seriously. Now, the fact that Buddhism latched onto that means that a lot of these aspects of Japanese society that are connected with ancestors and revering your family and your ancestors have taken on a religious aspect to them. And so they all look like different forms of idolatry to the Christian observer, you know, and it gets labeled ancestor worship. Um, and there's, you know, some truth to that because it's Buddhism that has been uh, kind of uh, 
codifying all of that. Nevertheless, at the core, the fact that um, Japanese people place a lot of value on their family and their ancestors is something that is very closely reflected in the Old Testament. Um, the Hebrew people were very much like that. For, for the Jewish person, you know, there's phrases in the Bible all the time about not so much worshiping my God, but worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are my ancestors. Um, and, you know, uh, when, when the Israelites were finally set free from their slavery in Egypt, um, it had been 400 years since Joseph had died, and um, they took Joseph's bones with them back to the promised land. And that's that's so Asian, um, you know, caring for your ancestors, revering their memory, even taking close care of their bones. That's something that's incredibly important. Uh, in Japanese society. And yet somehow, when missionaries came to Japan, especially Protestant missionaries, the great majority of them came from the U.S. And um, as such, many of them, like my parents, were children of immigrants. And, you know, immigrants are kind of unique people because they have chosen to make this huge step of leaving their homeland, leaving their families, their parents and their grandparents behind and going to a place that seems like it's another planet. And so naturally, first-generation immigrants don't have as close of a tie with their family and their family traditions as many other people do. So even in many parts of Europe and Scandinavia, where those immigrants originated from, family was really important. For that generation that chose to leave everything behind, pull up stakes and start a new life on the other side of the globe, um, you know, family, especially those who have gone before you, wasn't as important. And so when that generation of missionaries came to Japan and they saw this typically Asian um, context where everyone reveres their ancestors and they saw that it was being done, you know, in the context of uh, like Buddhism. It just looked like idolatry to them. It looked like ancestor worship. It looked horrible. And so they, they banned all of it. And unfortunately, if there, if, if it had been a more sensitive generation of missionaries who was more in touch with the value of family and ancestors, maybe they would have been able to come up with Christian alternatives for Japanese people to practice ways of revering their ancestors as Christians. Unfortunately, the missionaries that came didn't really see that much need or value in revering ancestors, um, even though it's a really big part of our history, particularly as it relates to the Old Testament. And so, that's something that I think is still a huge area to be kind of discovered and rediscovered by the church in Japan is what does it mean as a Christian, as a Japanese Christian, 
to continue revering, valuing my family, prioritizing my family, my tradition, my heritage, but to do so as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a question that has been largely unanswered. Where would you say the church is in terms of that? And how is the church currently navigating that? <laughs> Just like from your from your circles, from the people that you connect with? Funny that you would ask, because that's exactly the topic that I wrote my doctoral thesis on. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I guess I sort of led the conversation there. That's that's my bad. I better own that one. Um, oh, no, I love it. Go it all. <laughs> the... The Japanese church tends to not deal with this topic very directly just because it is so complicated and so fraught with uh, snags, you know. So, because the questions are very real for Japanese Christians. What do I do when someone in my family who's not a Christian, dies and they have a funeral. Am I allowed to attend that funeral? Because it's a Buddhist funeral. If so, are there certain things I'm allowed to do, certain things I'm not allowed to do? And some churches will give the people in the church some specific directives. But the bottom line that it's, is that it's a huge gray area. And most pastors realize it's a gray area. And there are some Christians in Japan who are very legalistic and say, as a Christian, you shouldn't have anything to do with Buddhist religious ceremonies, even if it's the funeral of your own parents. There are other Christians who are much more accommodating, but those disagreements can be pretty harsh and pretty deep. And most churches don't want to stir up that kind of disagreement within the church. And so they sort of skirt around the issue. I actually, as a part of my thesis, did some questionnaires um, for several hundred Japanese Christians and local churches asking them, you know, what is the church, what does your church have to say about this? And how have you personally navigated all of this? And what became clear in the results was that the churches don't offer a lot in the way of specific instructions or guidance on how to navigate through all these issues. But most Japanese Christians, just on their own, one way or another, have reached a point where they're comfortable with their own answers that they've come up with. And um, it's just that those answers vary from person to person. So yeah, it's a, it's kind of a big gray, gray area. And uh, I don't know if that will ever change or not. <laughs> it's a very interesting topic though. I think it's something that I also haven't had like too much time to reckon with, but something that I will need to reckon with because specifically being East Asian, um, a lot of intergenerational identity are intertwined with one another, mm -hmm. similarly to Japan. Yeah. So that's something that I have thought about, but yeah, no answers yet. <laughs> so I'll, how, do we still have time to talk more? Yeah. 
I'll throw out another puzzler for you. Um, last week, or maybe it was the week before, uh, on the 9th of May, whenever that was, a couple weeks ago, um, the oldest resident on the top of the mountain here passed away. She was 94. Um, wonderful lady. Uh, I was good friends with her. Um, her daughter and son-in-law run the biggest inn on top of the mountain here. And her name was Saki. Saki-san. Um, really friendly, really upbeat, uh, really sharp and witty, even at 94. And was always in the store there. Anytime I went and stopped by at the inn, she was hanging out there and chatting with people. And um, So I went to her funeral. And it was a it was a typical Buddhist funeral, pretty large scale, actually. There were like 400 or 500 people there. Um, and so there were four people who got up to give eulogies. And all four of them were her great-grandchildren, who are all teenagers in junior high and high school. And they each read these really nice eulogies that they had written about their grandma and how precious she was to them, their great-grandma. And um, one of them had an amazing little bit in it. One of her great-granddaughters was thanking her for all the support that she had given as a great-grandmother and recounted how this Saki-san, this great-grandmother, every single day would walk to the nearby Jizo. Uh, Jizo is a, a Buddhist statue, a place where people often pray. She would go there every day and she would pray for everyone in her family, her children, her grandchildren, and her great-grandchildren. She would name them by name and pray for each one of them every day. And I was just blown away because, like, I know so many Christian grandmas who do that, right? <laughs> you know, like, pray for their family members by name every day. Yeah. And I just thought that's really, in one sense, it's really beautiful um, that she was a loving person and she loved, her her loved ones were precious to her. And so every day she would pray for them to the higher power that she understood to sort of be watching over us. Um. You know, the problem as a Christian, the problems there are obvious, right? I mean, she's praying to what we in Christianity have to define as a false god. Um, and so the fact that the way she was doing it, the place she was doing it, and um, the sort of understanding of God on which that was based is something that varies rather significantly from our own understanding of God and our own ways and places of praying. But the commonalities were also just like totally undeniable that a loving elderly great-grandparent 
wants nothing more than to appeal to the divine for the well-being of her loved ones and does so by physically going to a place of prayer every day and naming her loved ones one by one and praying for them. I just thought, wow, that's like so beautiful. What a great example on the one hand, you know? (laughs) And so I'm just left with this sort of like big question mark in my heart and my mind. How do I process that? Because there's something beautiful there and there's something really commendable there. And yet the whole picture is void of Jesus Christ. And for me, you know, that's in some sense a deal breaker. But am am I going to like scoff at that and say all those were all wasted prayers because they were offered to the wrong deity uh, in the wrong way, in the wrong place? Or is there something of value that I can recognize in that act of loving care for someone else that involves invoking the powers of the divine? It's, and I don't have any answers. But that's pretty common in Japan um, and probably worldwide that, um, you know, there's, God is revealed in in direct revelation. um, You know, Jesus Christ coming to earth, um, showing us the way, beginning the work of, of rebuilding creation. Uh, into something that reflects the heart of the creator you know the good news that that's the gospel um and and we're charged with carrying on that work there's that sense in which we see the direct revelation of god and then theologians talk about the you know the secondary or the indirect revelation of god that we see in nature um in 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 all of creation things like that um I, I've never totally bought into the idea that you can specifically label something as primary revelation or secondary revelation. I think and sometimes the lines become rather gray and, and hard to distinguish. But, you know, there is a sense in which all religions in the history of humankind are an attempt on the part of humanity to reach out to, to find, and to connect with the divine. And that's perhaps a natural trait in humanity, but it's also a commendable trait in humanity. It may even be one of the core reasons why the Bible says that we humans are created in the image of God, that we have this natural desire to seek God. And every religion is an attempt uh, to do that. And so when you see people doing that earnestly, there is something beautiful and commendable there. Now, of course, you know, Christian systematic, systematic theology tells us that Christianity is the one religion in which God has reached down, has reached out to humanity in a specific way, something that can't be found in, in other religions. Um, and I don't know how far, how deep we want to go with that because there are actually some passages, passages in scripture that would make one think, there may have been times when God has actually worked directly with people 
through other venues and other outlets. Um, all of this to say, I am not a universalist. Um, <laughs> I was like, Jim, do we need an episode two? <laughs> and um, I'm not one of those that says, oh, all paths lead to the same place. That's that's not my thing at all. But um, yeah, I just saw in a real personal level with someone that I knew very well, a wonderful example um, of love, of caring love. Uh, but it was done in a, in a religious context that is very different from what I consider the normal and appropriate context for doing that. So, <laughs> yeah, it left me thinking, Lord, I still got a lot to learn here. You, you need to uh, walk me through this because I don't think I can figure it out all yeah. on my own. Yeah, and I, I love that the God we know is Emmanuel. He is God with mm -hmm. us and that we can bring our questions before him. <laughs> and and I, I so appreciate that about God. Like, we don't need to have everything figured out. We don't need to have all the answers. And he's big enough to hold that, yeah. which is which is so great. It's like, oh, I don't I don't need to have all of it figured out because I don't like it's really confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Jim, thank you so much for taking your precious morning and time to chat with me today. I learned so much and it was so fun. We will definitely have to do another episode to talk more de more in detail about all of this because this is very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> My pleasure. I would be happy to do that anytime. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please give a five star on Apple Podcasts. And if you would like to be featured on the show, email carepackagetojapan at gmail.com. And I'd love to chat with you as well. Until next time.